Hello. Passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Maureen Cornelis, and together we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts, just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. Today, my guest is Pedro Homem de Gouveia. Pedro is a senior policy and project manager at Polis, the network of cities and regions for transport innovation. Since 2019, Pedro coordinates the Working Group for Governance and Integration, which is focused on policymaking for innovation and public participation. He also coordinates the Working Group for Safety and Security, aiming to make city streets safe and transport systems secure. Before joining Polis, Pedro worked for more than 20 years for the city of Lisbon in Portugal as a strategist and advisor. Pedro will guide us into the process of making cities accessible and safe to all. Pedro, welcome. Hi, Marina. Thank you for having me here. It's my pleasure. Pedro, you held different positions with the city of Lisbon and you're now working with the Police Network in Brussels. How did you get into sustainable mobility and mobility design for the people? Well, I'm an architect by training, so I didn't grow up inside, let's say, the transport box. My first area I started working on was uh, accessibility and universal design. And in 2008, the Lisbon mayor asked us to come up with a plan to make a, for, with a pedestrian accessibility plan for the city of Lisbon. And originally, we were thinking about, you know, adapting toilets in the city museums and putting ramps in city schools and maybe doing something on the public space. We didn't know exactly what yet. But as soon as we started working, uh, we figured out that uh, there was a real, really big problem of pedestrian safety. It was directly connected with the accessibility problems. And so, I mean, it didn't just make sense to just put in the tactile paving and let crosswalks go on being very dangerous. So it's a classic case of a scope creep. We started putting in a traffic calming. And if you're going to start doing traffic calming, you've got to learn something about traffic management. And then if you got to learn something about traffic management, you're going to start thinking about uh, public transport, sustainable mobility, uh, and all of that. And curiously enough, I mean, if you start thinking about ways to make uh, public transport work better, you come back to the original point, which is, for example, you have to make buses uh, and bus stops more accessible and functional. So that's basically how I came in to think about uh, sustainable mobility. It was through making uh, public space uh, safe and functional and appealing for pedestrians. Interesting. You said that professionals that plan, design and manage the built environment have the power and the duty to help cities become friendly and safe for all users. You said that on your LinkedIn profile. I found it really interesting because transport and mobility issues are highly political. So... What have you learned along the way to know what the trick is into engaging policymakers? How do you build consensus around sustainable and safe mobility and transport issues? What kind of challenges did you face along the way? Well, actually, maybe I can tell a short story. I mean, the biggest lesson I've ever learned about all of this was taught to me by a 10-year-old kid. I was uh, doing my first project in an elementary school in Lisbon, you know, to make the school accessible. 
and I make, you know, an accessible path connecting all spaces of the school. And George was a 10-year-old kid studying there. Uh, he used a wheelchair, but, uh, you know, he was very well integrated in the, his class. He was one of the best students, something I never was in elementary school, nor later. But, well, anyway, he had a girlfriend, which I also didn't have in elementary school. But then again, don't no, not the matter here. So, you know, we, I, I did this accessible path, which, among other things, you know, had the ramp connecting to the, uh, to the football field. And uh, as the construction advanced, I mean, we had to cut on some of the costs, as always. And the thing that came up was, you know, let's not do the ramp to the football field because the kid uses a wheelchair. It makes no sense. I mean, we got to be reasonable, right? This common sense always comes up. Uh, we can't be radical. And I mean, just because I was a young architect and it was my first construction and because, you know, the ramp was really, really cool, I thought, you know, let's cut somewhere else and do the ramp. And one day when I visited the construction during the school year, the ramp had been just finished and the kid in his wheelchair were, was playing with the other kids in the football field. And it really taught me three things, both about accessibility, about public space, about uh, sustainable mobility, what have you, you know. The first thing it taught me was that, you know, the built environment is a source of opportunities or of obstacles. And there it was. We created an opportunity and the kid took it. The second thing it taught me was that, uh, I mean, all the discussions we have among the construction and design team, I mean, does it make any sense to make the ramp to the football field? I mean, maybe the kid will be traumatized because then the other colleagues won't let him play. I mean, maybe better not to build a ramp, right? I mean, all these, what we were in fact discussing was, do we give the kid the right to access the football field? And of course, I mean, there was nothing to discuss there because the law is clear already. You can't discriminate. And mind you, you know, the same issue recurrently comes up when we talk about pedestrian safety, cycling safety. Uh, we're, in essence, we're talking about the same thing. Do we give these people the right to use the public space safely? That's what we're discussing, although we may not be aware of it. And the third lesson it taught me was that, you know, it, uh, of course, building a ramp to the football field for a kid in a wheelchair wasn't common sense, right? But the point is, you know, it was about innovation. And innovation, uh, you know, always, especially innovation in human rights and in societal life, you know, it always goes against common sense. I mean, I inherited a book from a great-grandfather. He bought it in London in 1906. And the book's title is Why Women Shouldn't Vote. It's filled with 230 pages of common sense. Uh, of course, of common sense of the early 1900s. And I think it's a good thing that we went against that common sense. And coming back to sustainable mobility, the point is, you know, much of this common sense is basically something that results from and sustains and reinforces the status quo. And when you promote, you know, public dialogue, uh, public participation, and when you, you know, look for consensus, we really have to be aware of it. You know, common sense is conservative often. And so how do you build consensus? Well, maybe you don't. Because often building consensus is about looking for the lowest common denominator and right now, in terms of urban mobility, what we need is change, you know, substantive change. And so what we really have to do is to accelerate the shift to sustainable urban mobility. I mean, it's not longer about demonstrating or promoting or testing the viability. No, it's acting now. 
Uh, we have one decade to act and we need bold action. So we need to be smart about it. So it's not, again, not about building consensus, but about being smart in how we move forward. And I think there are three things that you know usually are missing. First of all is a, a clear purpose uh, and the sense of urgency. Most of the discussions I still hear about the sustainable mobility, you know, many people are still stuck in, you know, let's demonstrate sustainable mobility is necessary. It's obviously necessary. We have to move forward beyond that preliminary step. We have to look for viable tactics. Tactics, you know, approaches that uh, local elected officials, who are the ones really with the skin in the game, when they take out parking spaces or put in bike lanes or put in traffic calming measures, uh, we have to come up with tactics that, you know, they can use and survive with. And we, we must not repeat uh, mistakes, I mean, or think that technology will save us from making tough choices. It doesn't. It may enable a lot of stuff, but it doesn't save us from making tough choices. So, uh, you know, it's like saying that smart cities, what, smart cities, what they really are is not techie cities. It's the opposite of dumb cities. So that's it for building consensus. Yeah, I, I found it so interesting because at the end of the day, we realize how much of uh, social justice there is behind building a city that is designed for all its inhabitants. I mean, now there are also a lot of discussions about making cities safe for, for women. And it also, for instance, includes the question of lightning. I found it's extremely interesting, this kind of, of approach that goes beyond, let's say, stereotypes, but still yep. builds on life experience. And let's say from kind of bottom-up experience of the people uh, using the city and using the services that it has to offer and not the contrary. I found it so interesting. And could you elaborate this yeah yeah i mean maybe with the with the three short stories one of them i mean it, it's all about the life of real people and there's all this idea of culture that behavior change doesn't change because of culture and i hear that uh, in terms of uh for example road safety behavior uh, you know people park on sidewalks because it's the culture here or uh, people don't bike because it's the culture here and When you're in public administration, you learn that uh, the, the fastest way to solve a problem is to explain, you know, it doesn't have a solution. And culture usually comes up as a one-size-fits-all explanation for why we can't solve it. But, you know, as anthropologists point out, the physical environment generates patterns of behavior. And patterns of repeated behavior is basically what we call culture. So rather than changing the culture or taking what exists for granted, what we really need to see how we can adjust the infrastructure we've got to really honor the rights that we defend. For example, how can we accept the fact that in uh, almost all cities that I know, elderly people are disproportionately killed by cars and by motorcycles? When compared, I mean, for example, the city where I come from, elderly people are 25% of the population. We found out they were represented like over one third of all deaths and serious injuries. It's like elderly people are like the equivalent of the small canary that miners used to take down to the mines because they didn't have any sensors to indicate toxic uh, gases. The presence of toxic gases. So because the canaries were the most vulnerable, when they found the canaries dead, they ran out of the mines because it meant 
there were toxic gases present. And I mean, in a way, the elderly are the most, uh, and the pedestrians in general, I mean, they're, they're the most evident evidence, if, if I may use the pleonasm, that our street networks, that our road infrastructure isn't safe and isn't serving, you know, basically the right to, to life. So we, we really have to look at the infrastructure we've got in our cities, you know, at the way we have our right of way done, the carriageway, the sidewalks, the crosswalks we've got. And it's really not a question of the poetry of public space. It's a much more simple and fundamental question. I mean, they're often dangerous and they don't accommodate the basic natural needs of real users. And technology is not going to solve it. We really have to make adjustments to this infrastructure and make the city respect the rights of the citizens. I mean, when we look at the reality, what we find out is that very different types of users have their needs unmet and aren't even considered by different professionals that are designing or planning or managing or building or maintaining the infrastructure. And just coming out with technology and from the new app that will solve, the, that will help the blind circulate in public space, it's very nice, but you know, the barriers are still there. The tripping uh, risks are still there. The crosswalk is still dangerous. So it's nice to have an app, but we really have to solve the problems of the infrastructure of the real world. And an important thing about uh, accessibility and safety is that they always have and about these concerns in general, let's say, you know, it's that they always have functional implications and wider implications. I mean, for example, some years ago, there was this, uh, we were asked to study uh, how to increase the, the, the commercial speed in an express bus line. And my team was going in and out. The, the solution on the table was to find this very expensive communication system between the bus and the traffic lights so the buses wouldn't have to stop at the intersections. So our team went back and forward in the same bus line, you know, checking out the passengers, how they got in and out of the bus stops. And we found out that one, around one third of the passengers were elderly people and that they would take forever to come in and to go out of the bus because the bus stops weren't accessible. And because the bus stops weren't accessible, the steps to go in and out of the bus were too high. So old ladies were, were very slowly approaching the step, hanging on everything they could, and then putting one foot and then the other foot down and picking up their shopping bags. So basically, we figured out that uh, making the bus stops accessible and comfortable wouldn't only make the bus service more appealing, but it would make it faster. You know, another story, for example, is uh, there was a, a problem that often happens is, like you were mentioning, that uh, people who go, you know, parents uh, who are out in the streets with kids uh, using strollers, I mean, often the sidewalk is too narrow or it has cobblestones or even, you know, as they approach the crosswalk, if they want to see the traffic, because there are cars parked nearby, they have to put the stroller on the carriageway to be able to, to see the cars. It's crazy. But all of these things, you know, they are commonly ignored. These needs are commonly ignored. And, you know, often when professions are faced with that, when professionals deal with them, it's kind of a, you know, kind of a, 
a minority issue. And it's not. We really have to overcome this minority syndrome and really have professionals understand that, uh, you know, it's about everybody. And maybe finally, one of the critical issues is the issue of uh, women. Not only, you know, for example, the issue of uh, the security of women in public space. I mean, I remember three or four years ago, I was at a local neighborhood meeting, you know, doing my sermon about uh, people should use sustainable mobility and public transport, etc. And this lady who was, I think, in her 50s, 60s, she's told me, you know, that's all very nice, but uh, I lived abroad for many years. And when I came back, I thought, you know, I'll go on using public transport like I did abroad. But I only did it for a year because and during that one year, I saw more penises than during my whole life. And she was obviously, I mean, I don't know how many penises you're supposed to see, but the point is, I mean, obviously she was talking about a persistent problem, which is usually, usually normalized by victims, which is persistent and systematic sexual harassment in public space and public transport. And that is, number one, a huge problem that goes on everywhere. Number two, it is ignored. It is usually not in the data because people tend to normalize and very few complain about it. And third, that is a major, major obstacle in the way of sustainable urban mobility. Because first of all, women are more than half the population. It's convenient to think about it. And how can you promote the shift to sustainable mobility if there's something that's generating fear in more than half of the population? How can you tell a mother to encourage her daughter to use public transport, the same public transport where that mother was abused when she was a kid? So we really have to tackle this and to understand that all these issues you know, be it about accessibility and universal design, be it about the comfort and security of women, be it about the use of prams when you go around with kids, be it about all of these things, we real the, the transport sector has to understand that these supposedly external issues, political issues that aren't really technical and transport they are at the core of the shift that we must achieve to sustainable mobility. And if we don't deal with these issues, the shift isn't going to happen, or at least as fast as we need. That's very interesting. The, the three examples that you took, elderly lady, the mom with the pram, or the woman arrest in public transports are actually women. And somehow women are also the main users of public transports or the main walkers, but it's not designed for them. And that's quite a big challenge. How could that be overcome? How could more women be taken on board? Is there is there a shortage of uh, training or Uh, expert voices or is just like a consideration that mobility is it's a men's world is there a misconception coming let's say from marketing point of view that mobility equal cars and cars equal men what have you <laughs> noticed around this well first of all uh, transport isn't gender neutral the infrastructure we've had was basically thought about conceived planned designed, built, and for decades and decades managed by men. And it's a tendency that human beings have, you know, when they have to think about the public in general, they basically think about themselves. It's a common uh, thinking failure is that, you know, when we have to think about the general public, we take ourselves as a good measure of the general public. And it, that's obviously not the case. 
I think that the fact that uh, more and more women are accessing, uh, you know, graduate studies and they're coming in to the transport professional is very important. For example, you work on energy. Uh, one decade ago, I wouldn't dream of meeting a woman working on the energy sector. That's definitely very engineering and male stuff, or it was. Fortunately, isn't anymore. But just changing the uh, percentage of women in the workforce in this sector isn't enough. It is uh, critical to understand that the transport isn't an engineering thing. Transport is good game for engineers, for designers, for psychologists, for marketeers, for business people, for politicians, for environmental engineers, for planners. Transport is at the heart of our life. And we must encourage professionals from different sectors to come in and support the us. And we also must make the effort of reaching out and learning from them. I mean, for example, uh, one of the things is marketing. There's a lot to learn from marketing. You know, behavior change has become the holy grail of sustainable mobility. But sometimes most of the talk and discussion I hear about behavior change is by people who have no training in psychology. And sometimes it feels like, you know, I'm attending a congress of psychiatrists discussing the, the timing of traffic lights or something else about traffic. You know, it makes no sense. We really have to uh, reach out to people who know about environmental psychology, who know about cognitive psychology, and we have to reach out to the marketing profession. There's a lot to learn from them. I mean, in terms of the marketing approach, many efforts I see in, in, in transport are like the stone age of marketing based on this naive idea that people will do the right thing or that people will you know, follow the price. It's not like that. And uh, we must not also underestimate, for example, the fact that the automotive industry spent the past century, I would say, spending billions and billions of dollars in marketing research and in marketing. And it pretty much shaped the attitude, the common cultural attitude we have towards cars. They're a symbol of status. They're a symbol of you know, sexual prowess. They're a symbol of freedom. I mean, why don't they just market the mileage? I mean, because that's what we're doing in the sustainable mobility sector, right? We're saying, ah, it, it, it emits less CO2. You know, why would people care about it in their personal life? Uh, I mean, some do, great for them, but we need to reach the masses. And to reach the masses, we have to use proven marketing tools and strategies. I would point out, for example, four simple steps. Number one, you have to segment the public and not just put out general messages hoping that everybody acts and thinks the same. It doesn't happen that way. Number two, we have to obviously select and work on the segments that are closer to making the buy. Why do we persist on in chastising high middle-class car owners? Uh, I mean, they can afford cars. They won't be leaving their cars anytime soon. Why don't we instead work on providing alternatives and convincing marketing sustainable mobility to people who can hardly afford their private car or who are closer to accept uh, the solutions. The third step is we have to make it easy for the buy to happen, for the purchase to happen. Just look, for example, what happens when you want to use a bus. If you're going to start using the bus for your commute, 
First, you have to figure out how the bus lines work. And God, it's often so complicated. Then you have to buy a public, a monthly pass. But where do you buy the monthly pass? You have to go somewhere else. Uh, I mean, you can't just start using the bus tomorrow. Well, you can you do it, but you, then you should have a pre-purchased ticket. Where do you buy it? Well, not on the bus, somewhere else. You don't know exactly where. And if you don't have it, well, then you're going to buy a ticket in the bus, which is obviously more expensive which is basically very stupid because you want to make the first purchase easy and welcoming so that people do it again and again and again. And it seems like the, the system is rigged against uh, newcomers. And finally, you know, a fourth step is never, ever chastise or criticize uh, people who are not your clients. On the contrary, actively look for ways to bring them closer to you and value the existing customers. Everybody's focused on getting car drivers to use public transport. And nobody's valuing the already existing customers of public transport. And a critical thing is marketing. In marketing is word of mouth. So people who are considering dropping their cars and start using public transport, whose advice are they going to seek? Obviously, the advice of people who already use public transport. And if those people don't feel well-served and well-represented in value, they're not going to be saying nice things about public transport. They'll be dreaming themselves about getting a car, probably. So, you know, it's this professional marketing approach that we need, not something based on good intentions. They're really important, but not practical. Yeah, the other day you shared on LinkedIn a uh, hilarious ad promoting feet as the best alternative mode of local transport. It was really funny and uh, it was using some kind of joking that there was this technology available, that we, it was something that uh, users felt that they were born with them. And it was really, really funny and engaging as a, as a way to also uh, like underline the absurdity of having to reinvent technology and reinvent the wheels actually all, yeah. all the time. So, so I felt it was right. And maybe instead of saying uh, reinventing the wheel, we should say reinvent the foot for mobility yes. would be, be more appropriate. And about that, I was wondering that, you know, with the COVID-19 lockdowns and sudden uh, stop into commuting and transportation activities, like our daily transportation activities, now there, there has been the governments are injecting a lot of money into into bikes, in e-cars, into new trends, into uh, financing the sustainable transition, etc. So how do you see that? Do you think that people really miss packed buses or metros? Do you think that they will like massively use bikes from the moment everything starts to go back to normal? Or are they just like temporary solutions and are we getting back to, to cities very packed with the SUVs, for instance? How do you see the trends in the future? Well, first of all, I think that what we saw during the COVID lockdowns, uh, what happened was basically the... Um, pre-existing trends were highly accelerated. And, you know, two of them were basically teleworking and the other one was e-commerce. And so the fact that teleworking, you know, uh, is on the rise, it was already, but it's now really uh, on the rise in professions like ours, you know, in the third sector, in research and policy, and we can work from home, right? Even if we don't like it or we don't like it to do it every day. Just a small growth in 
teleworking can really have deep effects in city centers. I mean, for example, if from now on, everybody's going to, for example, telework one day per week. So of the five workdays, you telework one. That will mean, just by that, a 20% drop in footfall in the center of cities and a 20% drop in clients for all the restaurants and bars and cafes in city centers. And so that is really uh, endangering, threatening retail. It's like, you know, local retailers have are like battling the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you know, the recession, the lockdown, the teleworking, and the rise of e-commerce. But at the same time, I think one thing we should really think about is that I think became clear for everybody uh, during the lockdown is, you know, the fastest way to keep people away from the street is not to lock them inside their homes, is basically to just close the shops. And I was walking to the office uh, every day for the past year. And I mean, it was, I don't know if it was magical or horrible to see the, the streets deserted. So if you have uh, a change in uh, teleworking, uh, I mean, you will have definitely uh, an effect in local retail and in the life of the public space. So where will that take us? I'm not sure, but you know, you will surely have that effect. Another thing that uh, we should be paying good attention to is, you know, the change in the job market. And uh, because with the, with the lockdown and the recession, a lot of jobs were obliterated. And the jobs that were lost, you know, some of them will come back, but not as they were. And at the same time, I think third sector, I mean, will change job policies in the coming years because, you know, now that teleworking is possible, people can work from abroad. You can hire people from other countries at different prices, as many platforms are already doing. And, and the point here is that the pay is going to go down, probably. The job stability is going to be less as well. So if you have a less stable job and the lower paid job, I mean, you'll hardly be buying a house. And if you're not buying a house and you're renting one, then it's the, the turnover in the housing market will also rise. So if you have a, a rising turnover in the housing market and in the job market, it means that you'll have higher turnover in both ends of the of the commute. And it means that your commuting patterns will be much less stable. And it means also that, I mean, why will you be investing in a car? Because basically you won't have the money. Or if you can reach credit, I mean, you, maybe you can pay it for two or three years. You don't know how long you'll be in this job. And maybe you'll change jobs and, you know, start working in a place where you can't park the bloody car. So why buy one in the first place? So the changes in the job market will have deep effects in, in, the, in the urban commutes. And that will, in turn, have deep effects in the purchase of cars. And so we may see this trend really obliterate uh, an automotive industry, which is, you know, has its business model based on people buying private cars. You know, they can be going all electric as much as they want, but who will be buying them? And I'm confident that you'll see the numbers show that in the coming years. So finally, a question about electrification of fleets really is like, again, uh, it's obviously important and necessary, but, uh, you know, just electrification just by itself won't save the private car. I surely hope it doesn't because the private cars, you know, their abuse has been wrecking havoc in cities for many years. 
And finally, there's the question of public transport. I don't subscribe definitely to the idea that people are afraid of going back to public transport, maybe to be a bit provocative. I think that's pretty much a middle-class myth. If you have a lower income and you need to use public transport, I mean, afraid or not, you're going to use it, period. And so what we see in the numbers, I think, because I haven't seen a, a proper study with proper statistics showing that people are afraid of using public transport and so are not using it, I think it's a myth, unless proven wrong. What we see is obviously people are working less because they're either unemployed or because they're teleworking or because they've been laid off. And so obviously they're using less public transport. I mean, are they afraid of coming back? Well, for people who cannot afford other modes, they, they're either afraid or not, they're coming back. They will come back. And I mean, it's been also proven that public transport isn't necessarily more dangerous than using a private car in terms of, uh, you know, the, the COVID and all that stuff. So what the, the real question here, I think, is what will public transport become? Because it's not enough to just say, you know, public transport is the backbone of urban mobility. I mean, that's all fine. But the point is, you just don't go walking around with the backbone. You need legs and feet and fingers. And if you're going to do something, you also need arms and hands and fingers. And so the real question is, if we want people to shift away from their private cars into sustainable mobility, we really have to foster the emergence of, let's say, an alternative ecosystem of modes that work together. And it's not only going to be public transport, it also has to be new shared mobility services with investment from the private sector. Because also, you know, if we wanted everybody to drop their private cars and get on public transport tomorrow, the capacity isn't there. The capillarity isn't there. So what we really need is to foster the emergence of this alternative, an alternative that taken together is like the sum, the total is bigger than the sum of the parts. And to make that happen, I don't think it's the, the right way is to think if e-scooters are going to cannibalize walking or public transport, or if shared bikes are going to cannibalize whatever, or if ride hailing is going. The question is, we have to get people away from their private cars, number one. And for them to do it, they need to have an alternative that is as versatile and as reliable, or at least almost as versatile and reliable as the private car. And so that can be provided by a system that offers them buses and demand-responsive transport and ride-hailing and bike-sharing in e-scooter sharing and all of that taken together, you know, with or without a mass hop. The responses have to be there. And then when that system is available, people will quickly understand that this alternative as a whole is more affordable than just having a, a private car that pretty much sucks up between 10 and 20%, if not more, of your family budget. And which is, by the way, something that we also have to make clear. People consistently underestimate the cost that private cars have. And we have to help them understand that and see that. So really, the trend, I think, is, is to really, uh, I believe, more in shaping our destiny than uh, just trying to look for it, writ for it uh, written in the stars. And uh, I think we currently have the means to try to shape our destiny. The question is if we'll be smart and brave enough to pick up the tools and do it.
So I think it's a very nice metaphor and it's also a very nice way to wrap up our conversation today. You already said to me that, for instance, bike lanes aren't the silver bullet. They have to be, cities have to be safe to circulate with yep. bikes. You don't have to go for bike lanes as a prerequisite for bikes to circulate and to to be all around the, the town. So this idea of really taking ownership or, of the city and designing the city for the people is is in my sense absolutely uh, essential in order to build a just and inclusive energy and climate transition. And so thank you so much, Pedro. It was a fascinating conversation. And I really encourage our listener to, to visit your LinkedIn profile because you share a lot of interesting and out-of-the-box ideas and also some, some funny examples. So it's uh, I'm, I'm always learning so much when, when I see your name pop up on the screen. So um, thank you so much, Pedro, for this conversation today. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on Energetic. Thanks a lot, Marine. Thanks for listening to Energetic. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into sustainability and the just energy transition with the most inspiring stakeholders. All links and resources are in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this podcast, why not recommend it to a friend or a colleague? To continue the conversation, head on over to Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for lending your ears. That's all for this episode. Until next time.